Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey folks, good to be back after a brief hiatus from the podcast, kicking things off again here with Dr. Mark Elbrock, a scientist, tracker, writer, and storyteller with a focus on mountain lions. He is the lead scientist for the Puma program at Panthera, a global nonprofit focused on wildcat conservation. Mark's research on mountain lions is changing what we thought we knew about the species, especially with regards to their social lives and their keystone roles in ecosystems. His work was the central storyline of the BBC film Big Cats in High Places and National Geographic's Wild Cougars Undercover. Mark was the 17th person and the first non-African to earn a senior tracker certificate in 2005 in Kruger National Park, South Africa, after he successfully followed African lions across the terrain without being detected. He's authored 10 books on natural history, including field guides to animal tracking, animal skulls, survival skills, and his latest, The Cougar Conundrum, which we talk about in this interview. We covered Mark's scientific and academic background and his tracking experience, and then spent most of the conversation talking all about mountain lions and how we manage and coexist with them. Thanks for tuning in. Here's Dr. Elbrock. I'm sitting down with Dr. Mark Elbrock, lead scientist for the Puma program at Panthera, and um, writer, conservationist, author, naturalist. What else, Mark? Father. <laughs> Father. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> we just talked about that. Yeah. Hey, thanks for joining, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been uh, making my way through your latest book, The Cougar Conundrum, all about mountain lions, their management, and how we kind of sift through this stuff and figure out how to coexist with them. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Appreciate that. How long, uh, how long did it take you to write that one? Oh, um, it took a while to, to figure out how to write it. I had a very patient editor and she was kind enough to give me some coaching and, uh, you know, it was sort of learning a style and it was something really different for me. I'd done mostly information field guides, et cetera, before that. And, so this was, you know, trying new things like sharing my opinion and, uh, and, you know, moving into some areas of discomfort. But once I had it down, I whipped that thing out. It was, you know, I did sort of like a rough chapter a week once I got it going and, and you know, review them. But uh, it was all about sort of just learning what was needed. And then it just out it came. It had been sitting in my head so long, all these sort of thoughts and opinions so there you go you've you've been heavily published academically and you've published like something like a dozen field guides on tracking survival all sorts of things is this the least sort of academic of your work so far oh in terms of mountain lions absolutely yeah in terms of like sort of my broader 
uh, interests. No, I think there's definitely some less academic stuff out there. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't come across that. <laughs> when I was researching, I, I go, all right, I got to read this guy's stuff. And I pulled up your profile and it said 16 titles. So I just read the latest book. So <laughs> forgive yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. No, no. The, the, um, I've certainly put the most time into wildlife tracking stuff, just identifying tracks and signs and, uh, of all kinds of wildlife around North America. And, and so I had a revision of sort of the big guide that I worked on. And this one was co-authored with Casey McFarland and came out a couple of years back. I can't remember exactly when, but that's certainly a tome that I am proud of. And then yeah. and a little bit on behavior and a little bit on, um, spent a lot of time on skulls, which was cool. So, yeah. I love skulls. I have a mini collection myself just from picking stuff up in the woods and you know mostly animals that have been preyed on and the skulls are damaged but um i get really excited about that too uh how long have you been doing this how long have you been tracking animals oh well we didn't call it tracking back in the earliest years right so uh i mean i was born fascinated with wildlife and i you know sort of a, a funny anecdote was I was chatting with a cousin of mine who, you know, in England, and she she described a, a, a ride in the vehicle with me. And she said she described herself as trapped in the back seat with me for over an hour, uh, <laughs> in which I sort of gave a sermon on the natural history of red foxes. And, you know, so, I mean, it's just been kind of with me since the very beginning and couldn't imagine really doing anything else. How long did you live in England? Uh, not very long at all. So my father was stationed there, U.S. military, met my mother, who's British, and, you know, we returned to the U.S., you know, very quickly. But I think more important was that every summer, and usually an extended summer, I would return to be with our family there, and we would stay with my grandparents. And so it was sort of a formidable piece of my childhood was sort of growing up in the countryside where my grandparents were, where, where we first lived. So it's a tiny seaside town called Ulbra in Suffolk. And it's sort of, I describe it as, you know, there's sort of like the fat bump that faces towards Paris and the rest of Europe. Yeah. And so we were on the upper part of that bump right on the ocean. So when did you go on to start, I guess, your academic work and, and becoming a certified tracker? I read that you were the first non-African certified in Kruger National Park as a uh, wilderness tracker, what's the title? Uh, that was a senior senior tracker. So senior tracker. So for senior tracker in the U in Africa at the time, you had to follow um, a soft footed animal. So we generally use lions, and you had to follow the trail and find the lions and point them out to the evaluator and back away without being eaten or disturbing the lions. Wow. And, uh, and so that was so the trailing component. And then the track and sign component was, I don't remember, sort of 80-ish questions in the field, you know, whatever we encountered and from insect sign to rhino tracks to whatever. And they would ask you, you know, what is this or what is it doing? How's it moving? You know, why was it doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And so you had to score 100% on both of those to, uh, to get your seniors. So that took me a while. Whoa. You know, I trained, you know, very consciously yeah. and to to get to that place. And it took me three trips to to Africa. And each one was 
months, you know, it was, these were long trips and in which I was really fortunate. You know, one of my absolute greatest mentors has been a, a gentleman called Louis Liebenberg, who's a South African. And he's really done a tremendous amount on sort of documenting indigenous knowledge over in Africa and Southern Africa and sort of promoting uh, people with tracking skills as assets for conservation and in monitoring of biodiversity, et cetera. So I would just spend time with him and, you know, just we would go to community after community after community and just track for every day and with different people. And it was, you know, immersive and amazing. And uh, just it was a wonderful opportunity to just reflect also on what we do differently in our country uh -huh. and versus over there. And to be with people who were not just carrying, there was, you know, at the time when I was over there, I think there were three people who had an actual certificate called a master tracker certificate. But but more important than that, like these people were truly masters, had grown up tracking, you know, generally at the at the knee of their uh, of one of their parents or both. And so we're really like to to be with someone who has decades of field experience following animals and to reflect on kind of what I could see they knew, what I could see that they, you know, were still, well, even their humility and what they didn't know. And then, to, as I said, kind of reflect back on what I had experienced over in the U.S. in terms of tracking schools and classes and what people claim and, and mm. what they do. It was, it was inspirational, really, because it, it made things so much more achievable. You know, to realize, like, just I'll share a couple of key moments. Like, I was out with this guy named Wilson. He's now, unfortunately, passed away. He's absolutely, you know, an amazing human, but you know, an absolutely amazing tracker. And when he, we would follow lions, he never looked like he was tracking. He looked like he was just walking in the woods, you know, like, uh -huh. he didn't struggle at all. He just, and it was sort of because he's always looking so far ahead on the landscape he's making decisions about what he thinks this line's going to do and rather than sort of staring at his feet to try to see a footprint you know which is where a lot of people get stuck they look down and they look for footprints yeah and and so i remember at one point we came to this section there was a fork in the trail we were actually following white rhinos and and he was not the person in, in the front he was at the very back there were like six of us and there was a person being evaluated on a rhino trail and the, there was a fork and it was heavy grass, thick, thick grass that, you know, sort of waist high. And there are these worn trails through the grass. So, I mean, you know, the animals on one of these trails, because okay. if it left the trail, there'd be an obvious path through the tall grass, but these are so beaten down because they've been dry for months that it's, you really it's tough to see where they went um, because you're not really seeing those clean footprints there's hundreds of animals that have used this in the last you know, perhaps even 24 hours right and, uh, so we're following this this rhino and you could see the person who was in front who was being evaluated started really started to struggle like did they go left did they go right there was a clean fork could go either one and he, and, he, and this guy couldn't figure it out you know, he's like walking one sort of part of the fork, then going to the other one and checking, then going back and forth. And, you know, just went back and forth six, seven times to the point where we were like, okay, because when you're being evaluated, you can basically say, okay, I, I need the help, you know, help me now. Mm. And so he asked for help. 
and you know Wilson's in the far back, and he goes left, <laughs> and we're like, and so I sifted to the back of the to the line, and I just said, Wilson, what? Why did you say left? And he pointed, and there was a little bit of shriveled up green vegetation on one of the on the left side, on the grass. And I said, okay, I, I see what you're talking about. And he's like, duh. And I'm like, okay, I see the vegetation, but I'm still not <laughs> making the connection here because there's no green vegetation. And he said, don't you remember 300 yards ago, we passed that green bush that the rhino had grazed, or, you know, it browsed as it went by. And it must've been chewing it as it was moving. And then the wind was blowing this way. So it must've blown to that side of the trail. And it's been a couple hours, so it shriveled slightly. And there it is right there. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, for me, it was important because it made me realize I can see the exact same things as Wilson. There wasn't a magic power. He didn't have better eyes than me. He interpreted yeah. what he saw differently than me. And that is a much more achievable goal for myself to start to say, okay, I can learn the nuances of natural history of white rhinos well enough that I can interpret what I see versus where, what I felt was different in the United States is I felt like many tracking teachers were telling me that at some point I would get magic eyes. Like there was this sort of threshold and I would pass across it and have suddenly have magic powers. Um, yeah. And that is not the case. Like true master trackers are people who interpret the same thing that everybody else is seeing in a different way. So anyways. Yeah, it's like that trope of like the, the Native American with his ear to the ground listening. And it's like right. as if they have some supernatural ability. I will say, I mean, when you talk about the interpretation component of it, I, I looked through some of your tracking work, whatever was published online, and there were some examples that there was one that stuck out it was a picture of two tracks of, of what i thought was one track leading away and the caption said um this is a an adult bobcat and her kit walking away you can see the tail swishing uh meaning that the the kit was having trouble in the deep snow it was like a total i never would have would have put this all together it looked just like a clumsy track to me and so, I, I mean, I guess a lot of that just comes from spending time out there and, and actually seeing the animals, or is it mostly just kind of deducing their tracks and just coming up with these ideas? I don't know. How do you get there? Yeah. How do you get there? That's a good question. I think, you know, there's, it's a combination of lots of things, but certainly seeing animals, watching animals, the, the insights you gain from just five seconds with an animal are just, you can't even describe them, you know, you just go, oh, that's the way they move or oh yeah. that's what they were doing when they leave this tr collection of tracks on the ground and so those moments are you know amazing but i think you know more importantly is just to have that stubborn perseverance to want to know more and it's you know the detail is there but some folks just don't care and you just have to care, right? <laughs> so if you care enough to really try to figure it out or to say, I want to know more the next time I see this trail, you keep pushing that boundary. And and it is a dance because, you know, there I think there's a, a dance meaning like that you will speculate what's happening without 
definitive evidence to support it. And I personally, that is totally fine with me that you speculate okay. as long as you are open to seeking the evidence to either support what you are speculating or to say, you know what? Whoops, <laughs> that was totally wrong. Um, <laughs> and then you make something else up. And because really, I mean, that's scientific thinking, right? Is is you make a hypothesis and you look for evidence to support or refute it. And that's what we do in the field every day. We go out, I follow a bear trail and I say, I think the bear is feeding on this stuff. Oh, look, there it is. Boom. I can see where it's grazing. Perfect. Uh, or I think the bear um, is moving towards a bedding site because of what we're doing right now and where the wind is and the time of day, et cetera. And either it beds or it doesn't, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of what you do every day, all day is kind of make hypotheses up and test them. But there's separate from other forms of, of science, there's like a drama to it, almost like a crime scene investigation. That's kind of exciting. Yeah. Like, I think you could have been a good uh, CSI, whatever. Absolutely love that stuff. And it, and when you see someone who's good at it, it, it really does look like magic because you, you, mm. you think, oh, wow, these people have something I don't have. And it's just, as, as I said, it's really how they interpret the details, but also forcing themselves to acknowledge the details. And, and without practice and training and mentorship, of course, it's easy to overlook. You know, I mean, imagine looking in through a forest. There's just so many things you could be looking at, right? And how does one look at it? And to me, I mean, I always describe it now like following a trail is, is not about following footprints. It's about following a pattern in that forest. And to me, it's usually a break, right? So there's a for, there's like a color to the forest floor and the animal is creating a different color in the leaves, but the, the way the leaves turn or the ground stepped on. So it's either shinier or it's duller or it's, there's something there, right? The vegetation's been moved. So you start to see the undersides, it looks lighter and it's, it's just wow. a pattern. It's just a pattern and you just follow patterns. And, you know, that's, I feel like been much in terms of wildlife, that's been much of my life is just looking for patterns in out in nature and, and recognizing them as either different than what's around there. So you say, okay, this is important. It, 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 it deserves some of my attention. <laughs> like, why is it different? Um, or, or saying, you know, that that is, that is the general pattern of what's happening here. And so if you start thinking of it in that way, sort of recognizing patterns and breaks in patterns, it will draw your eye and your other senses to particular things that you might want to pay attention to. And that's, that, that's what I mean by perseverance and stubbornness is every time it draws your attention to something, if you're like me, it's frustrating to say, I have no idea what that is, or... I don't know what that is or, but it's more than that. You can say, I could know what that is. How do I get to know what that is? <laughs> you know, how do I figure right. out this, this sort of uh, question that's been laid out before me? Well, it's exciting for me to think about as a hunter, um, developing these skills. I, I'm still in the, in the staring down at the ground, looking for obvious footprints, uh, <laughs> phase, but I did have success last year tracking whitetail and kind of finding their trails, finding their rubs, understanding the, the path that this particular buck was taking. And after hunting it for a couple of weeks, it paid off kind of leaning on those, developing those skills a little bit more. So it's really exciting to me to, to learn that stuff. I also just come across a lot of strange things in the woods and, and want to know what happened. Like this year I came across a, 
a mule deer fawn skull and two yards away a black bear skull and i'm going what is this is this a mountain lion cache is this the bear killed the fawn and then choked and died like what what could this possibly be and so i think some of the deductive reasoning that you exhibit and, and talk about is is uh i don't know it's just fun for me to think about and try to get better at yeah yeah it's something you definitely can get better at and that's yeah. great and i would i you know i think worth highlighting one of the things you mentioned is is hunting because having an application for tracking skills in my opinion it provides a platform for improvement because suddenly you there's a reason to do it and there's a reason to keep going and to push it and hunting is just the most natural uh you know one of the most natural we'll say reasons to track animals and define them yeah what a worthwhile uh pursuit i mean i always say if hunting became illegal for some reason tomorrow i would probably become a, a bird watcher or something so any reason to get out there and and follow animals and look at them and, and see them um, my last question about about the tracking stuff is like in the case of Africa, is most of this skill being being used uh, for a hunting guiding application? And on top of that, is this like a mix of indigenous and scientific knowledge, or you know how do they how do they talk about it there? It depends, of course, where you are and who you're with, and there are folks. I mean, certainly when working with the Song communities in Botswana and Namibia, that's it's about their sustenance, right? It's they're going out and foraging still, hunting. Um, but you know, a, a greater proportion of their communities are dependent on subsidized foods from government rations or whatever, purchasing food with money uh, as their cultures change. Um, in South Africa, I mean, the groups that I worked with were mostly involved in ecotourism, which was sort of an, an application. Many of them, many of the great trackers started as poachers or using it sort of for, you know, for just game and food for the family and may, maybe moved into poaching because it was, you know, a way of basically getting more money to provide food for the family. Um, but then ecotourism is another avenue to apply, use those skills in a way that earns money to support the family. So it's all about, you know, sort of a means to an end. Um, there are definitely folks who are using it in science there. Uh, and, and what's really fun to see is that rather than the scientists themselves saying, okay, I'm going to go track an animal, they generally hire a professional to come in and uh. work with them, which I, that collaboration to me is something exciting. So, I mean, it just depends. But yeah, I mean, I think in Africa, there there definitely are clear roots to that sort of traditional application or learning of tracking because it was a means to an end. Survival of some kind. Uh, you know, it is transitioning from the direct meat to cash to buy the meat, but but those are both about survival. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, this brings us to the mountain lions, which you've dedicated so much of your professional work to uh, as the lead scientist for the Puma, Puma program with Panthera and and with your latest book, you've done a lot of thinking about mountain lions to the benefit of, of your readers. I mean, I, I feel like for the last few years, I have probably been seen by dozens of mountain lions and I haven't seen a one. And uh, I feel like I'm on this collision course of like, when's it going to happen? Um, I've been in their in their habitat. I've 
been, you know, I've found lion kills, lion scat, and I'm, you know, get the hair on the back of my neck kind of feeling. But um, I haven't seen one, except for maybe this year I saw something 200 yards away dash across the trail and, and convinced myself it was a lion, but who knows. Mm. Um, but your book, The Cougar Conundrum, was so beneficial for me to kind of, one, reduce my fear of mountain lions, of, of being around them, just by learning about the the facts about their behavior and their inherent shyness and timidness that you talk about, and two, kind of sift through the information and misinformation about how we manage them and, and the trickiness of coexisting with this species in particular. Why would you say that is? Why Why is this species so difficult for us to wrap our minds around and, and figure out how to coexist with? You know, I, like many large carnivores, they have teeth and claws. And, and so, of <laughs> course, people are afraid of them. And, of course, they compete with us. So they compete with us for deer and elk in the United States uh, and perhaps more importantly for sheep and goats. And they are a potential threat. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes them, at least in our country, different than, say, wolves or bears is that they are often invisible. And so yeah. it allows the human imagination to kind of uh, get going and, and we know the dangers when our imaginations start to run wild. So I think that's all kind of contributes to it, but there's also just this historical cultural rhetoric that is so embedded in our culture that we, I think people don't even realize it just sort of the, you know, that anti carnivore sentiment because they're either a threat to us or our livestock or our pets or our children or et cetera that is still very alive and well in today's world as it was 300 years ago when colonists were spreading west across the you know you know North America and so i mean there's just all of that happening and then, and i think you know it's just we experience it more directly these days because of just the proliferation of social media and the internet and just the speed with which information moves and the ability for anybody and their mother to step up and claim to be an expert. And, you know, that then these sort of like small communities that develop that some people call them echo chambers, but whatever, but like you get, you find people that think similarly to you and you kind of feed each other uh, a yeah. particular, um, we'll call it a belief system or a worldview. And, and that's not helpful either. Um, I think the U S in particular, you know, there's a couple of things that that are interesting to contemplate. You know, we are a country that ranks, you know, number one in individualism, right? <laughs> so, right. Uh, you know, we really value our ability to be uh, self-reliant, you know, isolated. We are independent. We are, um, you know, these are things that are really American core values, right? More so than anywhere else in the world. Australia, I think, is a close second. You know, some other countries are nearby, mm. but, you know, we are way up and ahead. And and so it's it's interesting. There's a couple of things that I think have come out of that. One is that we are really reluctant to do anything that would threaten individualism at the benefit of a community. 
And so when you look at carnivores in particular, like how you live with them, control them, nobody wants to suggest anything that is makes sense for the community at the expense of an individual. Instead, we go, we go about it the other way and we say, well, the individual is far more important. Let's not worry about the community of people living on this mountain. Let's worry about that one person who just lost a poodle or that one person who has three goats in the backyard and who cares if they don't protect those goats. That's their right to put those goats out there. It's their right to decide not to protect them. And it is the fault, uh, you know, and so we must help them when they lose a goat to a mountain lion. And, that's and the real- individual wants the agency to do something about it. Exactly. So, but this is all very American thinking. And, uh, and I think it's just important to kind of just, you know, be clear that that's an American thing. And, and then, you know, you, you, there's all these other cultural kind of components that are at play. You know, there, you, you talked about being a hunter, I'm a hunter, um, but there's very much a, a hunting worldview in the United States that sort of, that is very strong. And, and what I mean by that is like the traditional people who consider themselves, quote, hunters, uh, they grow up and in a particular culture, they believe certain things, they're fed certain information in certain ways, they tend to repeat it you know, that uh, hunting is the best way to manage wildlife, that uh, hunters are the greatest conservationists, that um, that fair chase is a core value of hunting. Uh, personally, I, I my approach to hunting has always come from sort of wilderness skills, survival skills, tracking skills. Fair chase doesn't make any sense to me personally, you know, because I have no interest in uh, it's not a sport for me. It's about getting food. You know, I go out yeah. and if I see a deer limping, heck yeah, that's going to be the one I'm going to hunt because that's the easier kill. Right. And, uh, right. you know, I'm, I have no interest in giving that deer a sporting chance. Um, that's just me, but, and, and we just have to realize that there's, there's many worldviews and that they're all okay. And I'm not saying that one is better than another, but I think it's important for us all to reflect on the fact that there are lots of views and that if we want to embrace individualism in our country, we can recognize the fact that it's okay if our neighbor thinks differently than us. And so that I think, you know, just to make one more leap is today because of social media and all the sorts of different influences of our culture, hunting culture, et cetera, that there's a real, oh, I think we can all see it in today's society of an us versus them mentality, right? So whether it's political, whatever issue you bring up, there's always an us and there's a them. And you you as an individual decide which side of the fence you're on and you will recognize and label others as on the other side. And with mountain lions, that is absolutely the same same thing is occurring you know there are those pro mountain lion and there are those who are anti-mountain lion and it's all tied to our other cultural values and our neighbors and where we live and whether we hunt and whether we do this and that but that is you know a fundamental american thing right now right so that again is kind of linked to our core american values is this us versus them and it is uh making the conservation of certainly of mountain lions, I'll just stay there, uh, even more difficult. Because if I could just promote one thing as I get older, it is 
that we just need to stop the us versus them and to recognize that it's okay for people to have different perspectives about mountain lions and that we just need to come together and kind of work through it. And, you know, I'll just give you a couple examples. That's something I think about a lot. You know, I, I was just last week asked to join a signature campaign. Like, will I, will Panthera and me support a signature campaign to stop the hunting of, of mountain lions in a, I'll just say a Western state. I think uh, I know which one. And, uh, and I said, no, because I don't want to support the us versus them. Like signature campaigns, we know they work. Uh, and they can go work for both directions, you know, whether it's pro-hunting or anti-hunting, they've been used both ways. But it's always some group trying to force another group to do something through a process, right? Rather than, you know, an approach where it's say, say a stakeholder working group where you bring people for, with different perspectives together who are open-minded enough to recognize that they're going to have to come up with something in the middle that's consensus. And, and the resilience and that that approach to me makes the most sense. Let's have people come together, recognize their differences, and come up with something that everybody can live with. Um, the species is, I mean, resilient is, is truly the core of what a mountain lion is. And, um, and for that reason, you can say things like, you can hunt them and conserve them. You can yeah. protect your sheep and live with mountain lions. We can raise our children and still have mountain lions as neighbors. You know, I mean, all of these things are possible. And, yeah. and so that I think that that would be my sort of core message is that it's, let's move away from us first them and let's build some, build some solutions together. I found that really comforting about the book is like you go through these many different examples and the, the ways that different states manage lions, the different methods of managing them, and you kind of lay out the everything out on the table and then toss all the false information and we're left with some kernels of truth, but more like an understanding of the complexity and um, that there's not a one size fits all solution to management. Uh, for example, you talk about how lion hunting can affect their behavior and can result in juvenile delinquency. Can you explain juvenile delinquency again for me? Sure. And, you know, it's something that there is increasing evidence to support, but it's still, we're kind of trying to figure it out, right? So I won't say we have all the answers, but when you hunt a population of mountain lions, what I think is important, well, it gets, there's a couple of things. There's a couple of avenues here. Maybe we can get back to kind of, how do we measure the health of an, of a lion population? That, let's okay. go with that for now. But uh, when you hunt mountain lions, ten, you know, the, typically folks want bigger mountain lions. And so that generally means males. They typically want older mountain lions because that means bigger mountain lions. And so there is some selection in the mountain lions that are being killed. And as that occurs, what it does, it creates holes because these are territory holding animals, right? So they're, you know, each male has sort of a territory to call its own. Each fem female has that as well. And as these, you know, males primarily are being plucked out in the beginning, but adult females as well, then these holes attract 
immigrants to come in and fill them because we call them land tenure species, which basically means that like they stand, they, they set up their home. Think of it as a home if you want. And if that, if that home is vacated, the next mountain lion to come in sets their home up almost in the exact same way, you know? So you get these sort of basically like these home ranges are quite stable on the landscape. And as they empty, another one comes in to fill it. And, you know, you'll see them shift a little bit, but that holds true really well. I mean, this is one of the reasons that lion hunters, if you've talked with lion hunters, they, they do the same cuts and they've been doing them for 20 years because yes. the next mountain lion that comes in often moves in a very similar way and, and sets up shop in a very similar place. And so when you start thinking about that, and so let's say you create a vacancy, the idea of the juvenile delinquent sort of hypothesis is that you remove a big male, it provides an opportunity for young males to come in and set up home. And so, but you might get more than one young male come in to compete for that space. And so you might see as instead of a reduction in the number of mountain lions in a particular place, you might actually see more mountain lions because you're now supporting all this immigration. Um, and more importantly, there's sort of this uh, time of turmoil or social unrest or social, you know, basically there's this a reorganization of local lions, right? Because you've got new players, you can see all things happen. Um, one thing that, you know, the evidence in mountain lions is not as strong as in other species, but the, the idea of infanticide is that a male gets removed, the next male that comes in and takes his home is not the father of all the local kittens. And therefore, the best way for him to compete with the history of that male and to propagate his own genetics is to go around and kill the kittens so that those yeah. females come into heat again. And then he can be the father of the local kittens. They can grow up and, and spread his genes. So as I said, you know, the we know that occurs in mountain lions. I, I don't know how, uh, you know, speaking broadly across all mountain lions, I, I'm not convinced it's as common as people would like to think. Um, we do know it occurs though. So, um, but that's just one way that social unrest can lead to sort of a domino effect. And I think what you're getting at is the way that people have talked about juvenile delinquent theory is, is to do with conflict. So that when you see these young cats coming in to fill the vacancy where that adult male was taken, that you might actually see an increase in the number of pets, goats, sheep that are having negative interactions with mountain lions, or people might have more interactions with them. There might be more young young mountain lions coming coming face to face with a hiker, a hunter, kind of you know, because these youngsters are inexperienced and they're moving around the landscapes and they often don't even really know where everything is. They don't know where the people are. They don't know where the deer are. They don't know where the elk are. And so they're just trying to figure things out and they run into people and human, the human footprint, if you will, basically houses and highways and et cetera, et cetera, coats more often than resident animals that, you know, the whole benefit of being a resident with a territory is you know your home. I know where the deer are. I know where the elk are. I know where the highways are. I know where those three houses are with pools. And I even know what time of the day the people are likely out and their dogs. And so I can navigate the landscape while reducing my risks and increasing my benefits. So um, yeah. these young animals just are trying to figure it out. So they don't have that knowledge. They don't have that mental map. And so they can, they do unexpected things. 
So yeah, you you talk about their behavior as being very kind of calculated, very shy, obviously effective predators, but a lot of their behavior is learned from their mothers, right? On in terms of how to hunt, where to hunt, you know, what to do. They're they're very it's all very learned it seems, but then you also mentioned that there's a degree of individualism not dissimilar to Americans uh, <laughs> where they'll kind of they may establish a preferred prey where they might one one lion might just decide he really likes the taste of pronghorn or really likes bighorn sheep and that's his target. Correct. How strange. Yeah. Or beavers or whatever. Yeah. Or beavers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was cool. Yeah, you can see uh, see individual mountain lions get become. I mean, they are individuals truly. And I, I think to kind of echo one of the things you said is the, the core things that I believe. You know, coming after now you know, two decades of following these animals around is um, I see them as incredibly cautious, risk avoiding, very timid, curious, of course, but, you know, really trying to, to reduce the chances of some sort of negative encounter for themselves. And I think that, you know, that's sort of surprising because, you know, early on in my career, and I think much of what I read earlier on was sort of this, you know, the independent, solitary hunter, um, fierce animal. And so I didn't expect that to be their sort of personality. And I, I believe that's really core to their ecology as they grew up in the shadow of wolves and bears and jaguars in other places and that you know, they they were never the top, top carnivore. They were always the one just below it. And that they had to kind of reduce their footprint, if you will, or their presence um, to be able to live with these other animals. And so I think that's reflective in how they live today. You know, it's just still the lineage of that sort of coexistence with other carnivores that were bigger and stronger or lived in packs and you know, we're always able to steal from them and push them off and push them around. Hmm. And going back to the confusion around them, they're they're so widely spread that we can't even we don't even have a consensus on what they're called. How many names are there for for the same species? Yeah, there's certainly well over a hundred. You know, and oh uh, I don't think anyone's ever been able to count all of them. But it it makes sense. They have an incredibly wide distribution. And if you think historically, all of the different cultures and languages that spread from Alaska all the way down to the tip of South America, all the different indigenous cultures, and, I mean, and they all had a name. And of course, there's just tons of names. There was, you know, Barnes was an author and trying to remember the year, was it 64? It was in the 60s that he published his book and he counted 84 different names. And, you know, that certainly was not a, a full survey of all the indigenous people that lived across the Americas even then. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's funny, I've shared stuff on, you know, like on social media about the names and stuff and people send me names all the time. So I mean, we're, <laughs> I we're over a hundred now, but I mean, uh, yeah. Puma, Panther, lion, catamount, mountain lion, um, all these are the exact same subspecies and are can interbreed with each other. You could take a lion from California and transplant it to uh, the Everglades and they would be able to successfully breed, right? Yeah, they're the same subspecies. Absolutely. Same animal. 
And so that's one thing that we've learned, you know, over as genetics has become sort of the basis for how we define species and subspecies. You know, back in the old days, we, we basically just measured them. And we said, look, this one has a slightly larger head over here in California than the one, say, in Nevada. So we'll call it a different subspecies. And back then, I mean, they had, my gosh, 30 subspecies of mountain lions. But now we're down to six. And one of them is pretty much the entire of North America. And so, you know, kind of where we're at nowadays in terms of what we think we know based on genetics, et cetera, and fossil evidence is that they evolved in South America and moved up into North America. And, you know, there was at one point where we thought they had evolved kind of in the north, that the glaciers had pushed them down into South America, and then they reinvaded North America. But more recently, from like full genome researches, they, they believe they probably started in South America you know, evolved out of that cheetah lineage, the old American cheetah. Yeah. And, um, and became the mountain lion, but it's been around for a long time, incredibly widespread. And in terms of genetics now, importantly, the, you know, the Florida panther, the, the old Eastern cougar that used to live in Maine or, you know, breed in Maine and the one in Idaho and the one in California are all the exact same animal. Genetically, I, one of the biggest threats to lions seems to be landscape connectivity, just like so many other creatures. Uh, I know a lot of your work is focused on that. And there's a great story that you talk about in the book of uh, my home state of Texas coming to the rescue to transplant cats from Texas to Florida to kind of solve a genetic bottleneck. Can you talk about that and, and sure, the uh, challenges of transplanting cats? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's one of the most well-known and widely discussed success stories of translocation in all of conservation around the world, you know, the Florida panther. So, I mean, just an amazing story. We had successfully wiped out mountain lions completely from the East Coast, all across the Central Plains there um, by what, 1920, 30-ish. And then we thought we had been successful, but it ended up that we hadn't. There was one tiny little remnant population that had survived in the swamps of Southern Florida. And only because there were probably too many bugs and gators for folks to go in there and look for them. Right. But they were rediscovered in 72 and in 73, they, they actually got one in a tree and got the first, you know, collar out and they started to study them. And they, I can't remember what the population estimate back then was but it was tiny you know it was like wow this population is in serious trouble so they were immediately classified as endangered immediately given protection by the state and the federal government it was amazing you know there was a real rally but they they quickly realized like well what are we going to do and then of course back then they thought they were distinct subspecies so could you bring in a cat from another place or is that going to mix up the genetics and be a problem you know, so that was all part of these early discussions. So in the 90s, they they went for it and brought cats out. The first time was a bit of a mix up. We won't, you know, they basically, they released cats in and then they gathered them back up again because they started to move into areas where they thought they would be running into people. And oh, okay. it was on the second round that was a more successful scenario where they brought in eight females from Texas and released them. They all had kittens. And then they, I don't, I actually have no idea why they did this, but they gathered them up too and they left the progeny and they 
all of the of the Florida Panthers today, when you get their genetics, has a piece of that Texas cats in them. So it was a huge success. It improved the genetic diversity in the population significantly. There were all sorts of issues back then, like males were starting to to be unable to have young because the sperm counts were so low and there were, you know, their sperm was deformed and they were getting kinked tails. They had facial anomalies. They were like, they were in trouble, you know, inbreeding, yeah. big deal. They've now learned or, or made the decision, we'll say, that as successful as that was and as much as the population has grown, there may be as many as 200 panthers out there now. We don't really know somewhere between 120 to 200 ish that it wasn't enough that they're going to have to reintroduce more really lines from elsewhere probably texas again or i have no idea actually where they'll be coming from but that decision has been made they, they've done the genetic diversity research like it's all there and now they have to kind of come up with a new plan how to bring in additional genetic diversity to bolster that population wow i didn't know that yeah man Similarly, on the 3,000 miles away on the other side of the country, Southern California has been been rallying around the conservation of mountain lions. I think it's really interesting that this uh, wildlife, the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, has been in the news, and I think uh, they did some ribbon cutting or something, shovel whatevering, to kind of kick off this this project that's going to cross 10 lanes of highway to save how many mountain lions in the in the Santa Monica Mountains? A dozen. <laughs> something like that <laughs> amazing it's I mean, it's, the, it's a crazy it's a, story you know i mean yeah. in in both truly inspirational wonderful ways and also kind of like mind bending you know like you makes you makes you wonder scratch your head i mean it, if you look at the money raised for that which is I, th I can't remember the final figure now. It was, you know, it started at maybe it was going to be a $20 million project and then it was a 40 million, then it was a 60. And then they had raised, I think they were aiming for 80 and which they have succeeded in doing. Um, the Alice, I forget their name, Wallenberg Foundation did what, a $25 million match. I mean, it was just an incredible effort. But um, like say you were to sit down 10 conservation practitioners from outlines and you know list possibilities in front of them and say you've got 40 million dollars what would you do with it would that be what they did with it probably not but okay. uh you know but but the the truth is is that that 40 million dollars wasn't available anywhere else the la really is a special place the community of people there is special they're the ability to tell the story of local mountain lions and to engage the public in their story and their plight has been, that's the part that to me is so inspirational and, and educational. Like how did they connect P22, the, the, the male mountain lion living below the Hollywood sign and the other lions of the Santa Monica's, how did they get the local people to fall in love with them and to embrace them? And how did they work with the state agencies to create a pot of money that could be utilized by the Department of Transportation to build this bridge? I mean, it's all just, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, it kind of comes out of like, you touched on this, but the, the celebrity culture of like, they glommed onto this one, these couple of individuals and made them celebrities and kind of celebrated their resiliency and their ability to survive in this super 
difficult landscape of of 10 lane highways and and it was just astounding that these creatures could still be here and um yeah kind of a cool story also like you said it's it's a little bit odd that like that much money could be raised for such a specific little niche uh <laughs> conservation project where there are so many other things to spend money on but you know hey i'm not going to complain about something like that it's a good thing exactly right? it's a great thing and and that story i mean i'm trying to sort of learn as much as i can from that story because here we are now trying to do the same thing in washington and so okay. you know this new genetic research that just came out in the last few months really highlighting that the olympic peninsula the population of, of mountain lions they call them cougars here is you know has the highest inbreeding coefficients has the lowest genetic diversity and that the real issue is interstate five which runs all the way down to la and mm -hmm. that the clear solution of course is underpasses and bridges and so we've been here working on this population since 2017 is it now no no 2018 is really when we got going um working with the local tribes on the peninsula we've you know got one of the biggest mountain lion projects running right now and you know we're all about building bridges and so nice you know that's that's our goal and that's our mission and we're kind of building that sort of public because we really need to convince the public that it's important and then hopefully that public uh, drive will influence political will which of course then creates opportunities for funding and yeah. the, the sort of governmental agency support to make it happen through my my work in landscape architecture i'm trying to get involved in similar efforts here where i live we're in one of the highest collision uh stretches here of colorado for mule deer and elk and um there's growing support for studying the pinch points and trying to understand where wildlife crossings could be most effective along this corridor so i'm trying to get involved as well because i've been convinced by the data of the effectiveness of these structures in allowing animals to to you know maintain wildlife or maintain habitat connectivity yeah and i think you know part of that story that they did so well down in southern california which is something we're really trying to push here and it's true for colorado as well is that it's not just about helping mountain lions or mule deer or reducing collisions which of course does help people because they can result in injuries and deaths for people it's about healthy landscapes and that we are very much part of these landscapes. You know, that's a, again, something that I, you know, it's my personal worldview, which may be different than others, but I look at the natural world around me as humans are part of that world. We are, it's not just a wildlife world. It is a integrated human wildlife world and that I'm an active participant in it and that my life depends on the health of my ecosystems and these bridges they not only facilitate animal movement, they actually facilitate ecosystem health over time. So that's a really big deal. That's the land ethic, brother. Yeah, there you go, right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you talked about some of the solutions or, or some of the best practices, I guess, for collaborative conservation. I feel like I need to listen to the last couple of chapters of your book again to, to really absorb all of it. But there was uh, some terms in there that I think I came away with in terms of, first of all, ecosystem services are something that are not always factored into the the equation of conservation. Can you talk about what that means for mountain lions? 
So ecosystem services is a term that it specifically refers to something that nature does or an animal does that is of benefit to us people. And it's very much rooted in sort of this capitalist approach to life, right? That uh, if something doesn't have a value, then um, it doesn't have a value. And so, you know, the, the sort of approach so far has been to put dollar values on things like what does bee pollination do for us? What does bats eating insects do for us, you know, in terms of the money it saves us in crop production uh, or something like that. So there are these sort of big idea projects. Um, in terms of mountain lions, you know, you can think of, you know, let's just say it killing a deer, right? So on one side of the highway, there's a tree farm. So perhaps killing a deer there is a, of a, an actual benefit to the tree farm because it's that deer was killing all the saplings. Um, if it killed it right next to the road, that's a benefit to our world because it, you know, was perhaps reducing the chance of a, of a collision. Uh, and yet, if it was on the other side of the road and went up the hill and it's now a national forest, um, if it kills a deer, maybe it's no real big deal in terms of money. And what if it took a, an antlered adult male buck? You know, was that an actual removal of a potential resource that hunters would have preferred to have taken themselves. And so is that a cost? And so there's like benefits and costs of anything any animal does and that we can view and sort of, you know, analyze them to kind of assess the pros and cons uh, that each animal brings to society. And, and I would argue, you know, not argue, I would just mention that this approach, this sort of ecosystem services approach is, is not necessarily the best approach. And it's certainly not the only approach to talking about wildlife with everyday people. But for some, it makes sense, right? They say, I want to know what the value of that animal is. And if there's value to it, then sure, we can keep them or we'll protect them. But if there's no value to me, then I'm not so interested, right? Whereas others argue, for instance, that we shouldn't have to give a dollar value to wildlife. There should be an intrinsic worth to wildlife. It, everything should have a right to live. You can see it how becoming more of an ethical or a moral argument that life is important, uh, or you could just argue that in terms of biodiversity, diversity is important, that we need that diversity in our systems just to kind of keep everything working. Um, yeah. And there's there's lots of ways to talk to, to everyday people about mountain lions, but you know, ecosystem services being one that sort of targets that or trying to convince folks, or not trying to convince them, showing them the evidence that mountain lions actually have value to us and that we are reliant upon them. Hmm. I found myself challenged a lot in this book and in a good way in terms of, you know, I've, I've fallen into some of the narrative uh, that's propagated by hunters and the, and the hunting industry as a whole. And it was nice to, to see behind the scenes, you kind of showed how, how hunters organize around certain ideas and propagate certain ideas about conservation, stemming from the early North American model, the Pittman-Roberts Act, and, and some of the forward thinking that flipped the script on hunting to turn it from something that was depleting wildlife to something that was actually conserving wildlife through taxation, which is a great thing. But then I think you do a good job of challenging 
those sweeping statements that hunting is conservation. Hunters are the only only people that care or that are that are contributing to the conservation of wildlife species. It's like there's other avenues, there's other ways to conserve. And as you said earlier, we can hunt lions and conserve them. Or in some cases, maybe it's not best to hunt them for a while. For folks like me who who want to understand how to protect the right to hunt for future generations, I guess, what's the best way to sift through this information and to act in the best interest of wildlife? That's a, I didn't frame that question correctly, but. Yeah, well, I can, I can ramble a bit. I, I appreciate you being, you know, positive about those last few chapters. I know they are, they're the chapters that I, many people have said challenge them the most. Um, yeah. And, and many of them, I've had people say, yeah, I just stopped reading, you know, when I got there because it, it either was too extreme or they, they felt like it was too biased, you know, in one, in a particular worldview. Huh. So for whatever reason though, they didn't make it through because, you know, they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're saying things that are, they can't be true. You know, <laughs> like that would, that would really destroy how I view hunting and, you know, sort of the role of hunters and, and management, et cetera. So what, I guess what I would say is I would go back to that us versus them. I, I want to encourage that all of us, hunters, non-hunters, et cetera, recognize that there are people with different perspectives. And, you know, as I, I say again and again is I'm not trying to push towards management without hunters. Absolutely not. They are critical to the management of wildlife. Um, and as a hunter myself, you know, I, I really value the opportunity to participate in nature. That's how I how I view it. That's how I teach my children about it. That this is active participation in nature. And and so again, I would just emphasize folks to just breathe <laughs> and say. It's, it's it's okay to hear other people's perspectives, and that what we're, we're what I am encouraging and supporting is the idea that the management of wildlife becomes the purview of all people, whereas historically it has been the purview of very select groups of people, and ironically those groups are a tiny percentage of our larger society, and. And so the only way that these small groups have re retained their positions of power in influencing wildlife management is through special interests, lobbying, and politics. And that's just the reality. And I'm not trying to threaten that, you know, to remove certain people from, from their ability to contribute to wildlife management. What I would like to see is a diversification of the people who participate in that process. And yeah. part of that is convincing non-hunters that they too have a place at the table and should be interested. I mean, some people just don't care, right? They don't think about mountain lions. They don't think about deer or elk. But how do we get them to to want to be involved in the discussions around mountain lions? So anyway. Yeah. And as a matter of participation, you know, hunters have the claim as of now that, hey, we're the ones paying for this stuff. Every gun that I purchased, 11%. Tax goes to state agencies that manage this wildlife. You throw out the idea that, it, that I've come across before framed as a backpack tax, where why don't we extend that to other outdoor gear so that hikers and campers and non-hunters are actually financially participating as well and have a little bit more 
of a valid claim or a, or a place at the table. As they should, you know, we should all be contributing yeah. to the funds needed to conserve and manage our wildlife. Absolutely. That's what conservation is. Right. And so, and that's one thing I, you know, I think people struggle with is this idea that to recognize that state agencies who are all struggling, struggling for cash, right. And so are unable to fulfill their duties to manage and conserve all the wildlife under their purview, as well as the landscape level conservation initiatives, buying land, protecting land, et cetera, because of a lack of funds are actively trying not to allow the diversification of funding because they don't want to reduce the power positions of their key constituents. And that's, sure. that's like a crazy thing. And, you know, to help folks that say we're not yet, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, if you really are open to the discussion, you realize like, oh, of course they're not. They, they're, they're scared of, of losing that privileged position or privileged influence on wildlife management. Um, because I, I remember talking to someone in Texas recently where I've been involved in a lot of stakeholder sort of movement to kind of initiate some uh, management of mountain lions in that state. And I said, you know, to me, it's not an issue about mountain lions at all. This is an issue about people. And because if the people of Texas were represented in the decision-making process, of course, there'd be protections for mountain lions. <laughs> you know, we know the people of Texas want that, but right now they don't, they're ignoring the vast majority of Texans and only listening to this tiny segment of society. And that's true in every Western state. And again, I'm not saying that the people they're listening to aren't important, they are. What I'd like to see is them to listen and incorporate the beliefs of more people, more kinds of people with different backgrounds, interests, uh, et cetera. And honestly, I think then everything would resolve itself. Uh, I am all for seeing hunting continue. I mean, I think hopefully that's clear. Uh, I don't see the diversification of funding or representation of different kinds of people as any threat to the future of hunting. I think we're seeing a tremendous movement right now to recognize local foods, uh, connection to nature. Uh, the sort of hunting for food is is not really, I don't see there's any pushback against that. You know, as someone who lives in the West, has been in the West for a long time, um, communities I live in value their ability to harvest local foods. And that might be yeah. deer and elk, but it's also mushrooms and berries and clams and crabs, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that active participation is, is a, an important part of our local cultures. Yeah. And to that end, you know, what, part of what I'm trying to do with this podcast and part of, again, what I appreciate about, appreciated about your work is looking for deep knowledge on a subject and navigating the nuance of these things I would discourage folks from participating in, in the, the meme culture. It's funny to see these stories of like one lion that gets killed that becomes a national story when that month, I'm sure hundreds of other lions got killed all across the West in perfectly legal hunts, but these become lightning rods. And as you said in the book, you're not participating, you're spectating yeah. by doing that. If you really want to participate, there are, there are, constructive ways of doing so and it probably starts with reading books and getting a little bit of real knowledge yeah and meeting your local wardens and going to public meetings hosted by state agencies and shaking the hands of folks who work for your state agency meeting other folks who have different and diverging interests 
about a species that you're interested in. I mean, this is, we're, we need to come together as a community. You need to participate in your community. This is not surprising. You know, yeah. it's, it's true for wildlife as it is, you know, in discussions about, um, you know, who's going to be in charge of the school board or, you know, whether or not you should build, a, a, you know, a, a roundabout in town to address traffic congestion. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, man, I, I really appreciate your time here. I really obviously enjoyed your book and, and look forward to, uh, are you working on anything else at the moment? Any new books, new species? Um, right now I'm pretty bogged down with, with work. Um, you know, Panthera is at an exciting time. We're expanding a lot. Um, our, our program in particular, the mountain lion program has really taken off. And so that's been sort of my focus the last, last few years is to kind of see that growth, support it, and to make sure it's sustainable before I kind of go back to my own things. But yeah, I've got a couple ideas I'd like to address. I'd like to write about trophy hunting, pros, the cons, the controversies. I'd love to uh, write about the secret social lives of mountain lions someday. Um, but yeah, there's there's lots of stuff happening and there's, there's always stuff to engage in for sure. For sure. Uh, I'd like to follow up with you sometime. And, and uh, I think that the subject of Texas mountain lions is really one that's near and dear to me and, and a difficult problem to solve with such a dearth of public land. Um, but that's a whole nother hour of conversation. So I won't, I won't bother you. Um, lastly, where can people find your work if they want to support Panthera or read any of your books? Oh, um, panthera.org Panthera, just like, uh, you know, well, Panthera is the genus for large cats, but it's kind of, isn't that the heavy metal band eighties or nineties? Pantera. Pantera, yeah, but yeah. like with an H, so P-A-N-T-H-E-R-A, panthera.org. Uh, I have a website that I very infrequently visit, um, marklbrock.com. Um, yeah, I mean, you just type my name into, you know, on Google Scholar, or, you know, just to find papers or Amazon to find a book that it's a good way to, to find me. Um, and in terms of, yeah, Panthera has its own social media. And then Panthera Pumas, like one word, is our Instagram and our Facebook sort of handles. And we do, we're trying to do more and more on there. So that's good. Um, and then I'll just leave you with the Texas thing that this Thursday is the first stake, new stakeholder meeting with the hope that there, after a series of stakeholder meetings, that there will be um, a vote in August at the Wildlife Commission meeting to see if they will initiate changes in mountain lion policy in the state, which is pretty freaking exciting. Okay, nice. <laughs> nice. For Texans, pay attention to that. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I'll put up uh, links to your work as well. And uh, very, very much appreciate your time. Yeah, anytime, anytime. So wish All you right. well. Thanks so much. Likewise. <laughs>